0: Guess what, Lions? For as little as $5 a month, you can get access to exclusive bonus audio content and help this program grow by joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash support.
1: They have these ideas that whites are responsible for the crime of history that, you know, their ancestors might not have been involved in. If your ancestors came over here in 1910 through Ellis Island, somehow you're still responsible for slavery. To the Lions of Liberty podcast, here is your host,
0: your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire.
1: Yo, ho, ho,
0: and a bottle of liberty. Welcome back, my friends, to another edition of Lions of Liberty, the 297th episode of this show. My, oh, my, we are getting ever so close to the vaunted... The Much Bollyhood, episode 300. Now, I'll have a big announcement at the end of the show of exactly what you're going to get for episode 300. But we are not quite there yet. No, we've got another few great conversations between now and then, starting with today's guest. With me today is the deputy editor as well as a columnist at The Daily Caller. He is also the author of the book No Campus for White Men, The Transformation of Higher Education into Hateful Indoctrination. I'm pleased to welcome Scott Greer. Scott, are you ready to roar? Yes. Excellent. Now, Scott, there's a lot to dig into with your book here. It's a very important book, if I do say so myself, but why don't you start off just giving us a little bit of background on you. How did you first become a, a political animal, so to speak, and how did you find yourself working over at The Daily Caller?
1: Well, all things uh, first started off when I graduated college. Um, I got a job at the at a place called the Leadership Institute, which is a conservative nonprofit, uh, primarily focused on connecting young people on the right, young student leaders on the right, and getting them motivated, training them for activism. And I started off when I uh, was working there, I started off at a place called Campus Reform, which some of your uh, listeners might be familiar with if they read the Drudge Report or any conservative media. A lot of the first big stories that come out about college campuses come from Campus Reform. And this is uh, spring of 2013. And I got my start there, uh, focusing on education and campus-related topics. And that first got my interest in uh, what was happening at our schools. It was a lot different back in 2013. A lot of this stuff has gotten a lot more extreme, a lot more radical now than it was, say, when I was first starting off with this. So when I first got at Campus form, my first story ever uh, got picked up by the Drudge Report, and I've been a uh, journalist ever since. So it's been a pretty exciting time, and a year later, after you know, working in Washington, D.C., I uh, got... Uh, moved over to the Daily Caller in February 2014, and I've been there ever since. Uh, I've been mostly covering around a, t- a ton of different topics, but education has always remained a very big focus in my reporting, and in what am I covering, and what I'm writing columns on. And the inspiration for No Campus for White Men came in November of 2015, when there were two big events that captured the national attention. There was protests at both Yale University and the University of Missouri, two very different schools. You know, University of Missouri, public university situated in a red state in the heartland of America. Yale University, with Harvard, one of the top two uh, schools in the country, Ivy League, associated with, coast, with the coast, very elite. Both, but both of these schools were facing uh, very heated protests that were driven a lot by racial issues. And when I first started seeing these, I saw that a lot of reporting on the matter and a lot of people who were commenting on it, particularly from the right, were seeing it as like, oh, well, these college kids, they just can't understand uh, different points of view. They're all upset because they just they want to uh, stay in their safe spaces. Well, that is true to an extent, but it ignored the racial element that was Uh, animating both these protests. And when I saw these incidents, I was like, you know what? I need to delve deeper into this topic and see what's really going on. And that proved to be the genesis for No Campus for White Men.
0: That's really interesting. So you've been in this sort of into the issues of what's going on on our campuses really for not even even before your career started, because you were on the campus before that, and then shortly after getting out, you quickly became involved in this issue, and that actually ended up launching your journalist career. So it seems like you've really been tied to this the whole time. Uh, I'm I'm curious what to what extent you saw some of this happening while you're actually in school. I believe you graduated in 2012. Where did you go to college, by the way? And and what what did you see in the four or so years you were in school? Anything that
1: would indicate that? Any of this uh, yeah, stuff I graduated in 2012 from the road? University of Tennessee uh, Chattanooga, small uh, public university in Tennessee. And when I was there, I actually didn't see a lot of this. Um, I never had to take a session where I was learning about white privilege. I was even involved in a lot of the administrative affairs of school. Uh, I was a, a freshman orientation leader. So a lot of this stuff that we see that a lot of this news coverage covers sees a lot of this crazy things that they're teaching in orientation. Like every white person is racist or, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, gender, there's not two genders. There's many genders. A lot of this crazy stuff we first see happens at orientation. I never saw any of that. And I never saw a trigger warning or a microaggression or anything. But one of the things that kind of shocked me that showed that I needed to write this, I think this was around 2014, I was reading my campus newspaper uh, online and I saw that they had like a story about a crime. And it started off with a trigger warning. And I was like, what what is this? Why Why are they covering um a story and then including a trigger warning about how you know sensitive readers shouldn't continue on with this important news story about a crime that happened on campus because you know it might uh it might hurt you and i thought this is kind of crazy so uh, one of the motivating factors for the book is that i didn't experience this at all at college you know this is something that's really just happened over the last 3 or 4 years with this push for campus insanity i mean elements of it were already were always present at schools like Oberlin and Columbia and NYU and stuff you know Berkeley of course, but very schools with a very um, left-wing reputation but it wasn't present everywhere. and it wasn't present at you know your red State public university. Well now it's pre- it's everywhere you go no matter what school you're going to and you'll see trigger warning safe spaces, people needing to check the white privilege. So that was uh, another inspiration for me. Because it's very different from my college experience, and I've only been out of school for, you know, five years.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a very short time span for things to change, uh, apparently so rapidly. Do you have any kind of sense of what's really behind this change, the overall tone that seems to be present at campuses now? And and like you said, it's not just limited to the trigger warnings and the safe spaces. There's a really heavy... Anti-white undertone, as we can we know from the title of your book, and we'll we'll dive into that a little bit more. But do you do you have any greater sense of what is behind this overall push?
1: Well, I would say one thing is is that we've seen a lot more protest movements uh, develop in this country since the election, since uh, Barack Obama's re-election. Uh, I went to school basically for the duration of his first term, and I th- the left at that time was a became a lot more moderate. They're in a triumphant mood. And they calmed down from the Bush years. You know, they we got Barack Obama elected. This is our man. He's in the White House, so we're now happy. We're not in, really interested in activism anymore. You know, the anti-war movement pretty much disappeared overnight when uh, when Obama was elected. So a lot of these movements kind of died out in his first term. And we 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 saw Occupy, and I saw a few things, uh, you know, with Occupy on campus, but. Everyone kind of laughed it off, you know, it wasn't a big deal at our at our school and I didn't really see it a big deal at any other schools. But I think the development of Black Lives Matter as the biggest and most serious polit- protest movement in our country has really bled onto college campuses because for any for, you know, pretty much every political movement, its most radical, most energetic and devoted followers are young people, you know, who are college age. And colleges throughout the country have served as a primary breeding ground for Black Lives Matter activism. So and that's where they're most active, engaged and most concerned with any topic. So, uh, you know, what? A lot of the news coverage has focused on is, you know, a lot of the big protests and riots that have been associated with Black Lives Matter. But most of their activism is reversed, reserved to a college campus where they're focusing in on things of matter such as there's a statue of Thomas Jefferson. Well, we don't like Thomas Jefferson because he was a slave owner and he's a racist, evil bigot. So we want to get rid of him. So a lot of this activism has taken its biggest hold on a college campus.
0: Do you think that's because they they intentionally just believe that college students, like, do Black Lives Matter activists and other people that are trying to sort of spew this sort of hatred, are they doing so intentionally on college campuses because that is just a a prime breeding ground for people that are going to be the most open to these ideas?
1: I would say so. That, That does play a part of it. But a lot of these are college students themselves. I think college students at that time, at that age, they're more willing to engage in radical behavior. And they find... You know, as colleges are, I uh, uh, shall we say, safe spaces for this behavior, because administrators have a sympathy with the cutting edge of the left, and they don't want to be seen as a racist or bigoted by going against these protesters on the left. So, uh, they already have a sympathetic audience with the powers that be on a college campus. All these administrators are left wing. The professors are left wing. And anyone who's a conservative administrator or professor is going to stay, is going to shut up and be silent because they don't want to face the consequences. You know, they don't want the protesters, uh, you know, barging in their offense and screaming and yelling at them that they're a racist because they disagreed with some radical protest. So they've just found this perfect grounds for to do all this kind of behavior and they're rewarded or uh, there's no pushback against it. They're the loudest pressure group. They don't have to worry about administrators, you know, going against them are fellow conservative students going against them because they know that they have the powers to be on their side. And on a college campus, you know, a lot of students are more left-leaning than they are going to be at any other stage of their life. So it's just kind of a, you know, convergence of factors coming in here that has led to campus insanity. So I would, I would just say that the development of protest movements and more students have embraced ideas that they wouldn't have 10 years ago or even 20 years ago that have led to where we are now.
0: It's kind of the cool thing to do now,
1: huh? I would say so.
0: So let's dig into this a little bit. You use the term, uh, and and some people might think it's, I don't know, uh, hyperbolic, but you use the term hateful indoctrination to describe what's going on. So let's dig into that a little bit more. What are some of the biggest elements of, of what you see as the hateful indoctrination that is being spread on college campuses?
1: Well the hateful indoctrination is that all these college campuses are now implementing these ideas of like every white student is ra- is racist and they need to check their privilege. We see time and time again that orientation programs, required freshman classes teach these ideas and they schools send out these guidelines where they have these ideas that whites have inherent privilege just due to the color of their skin and not only that they also are responsible for the crimes of of history that you know, their ancestors might not not have been involved in. If your ancestors came over here in 1910 through Ellis Island, somehow you're still responsible for slavery. And we see this at, at college campuses throughout the country where they either have classes or these required material And by teaching this, this not only teaches white students to feel bad just because of the color of their skin, something they have no control over. It also teaches other non-white students to hate them. Just a recent example is that a Yale dean said that she loved the diversity at her school, but she hated all the white trash there. Uh, The fact that an administrator would say such a racist, hateful statement and feel that she can keep her job and that it's a right statement to show shows the mentality that's taken over a college campus, that why would anyone have, why would you hate the so-called white trash uh, of Yale University? Why, why would you even feel the need to say this statement? But the fact that these administrators can say this, and we see this all the time when professors are like, uh, you know, we'll say just uh, uh, things that are like all whites are racist and other powers at universities will say these types of things, and they get away with it in a lot of cases. Um, so this is at every college campus, and when students hear this type of rhetoric, it sends a message to white students that they should feel bad just because of the color of their skin, and it sends a message as, as well to non-whites that they should hate their fellow white classmates just because of what happened in the past. And for things that a lot of these kids had no, no involvement in whatsoever, their ancestors had no involvement, You know, they might have been in a different country at the time. But they are all responsible for these evils, such as slavery, colonialism, uh, segregation. They are responsible for this. And when others, when students have to hear this on day in, day out, that like white people did this, they did so much evil, they've stolen, they've raped, they've murdered, they're just a cancer upon the earth. You know, that sends a, that's not going to create a message of love and tolerance on campus. That's going to lead to division, conflict, and hatred. So it, 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 it is hateful indoctrination what's going on in many parts of higher education.
0: Do you have any sense or I don't know, it might be too soon for serious studies to be done on this kind of thing. But I'm curious if you have just heard anything about how this actually does affect the psyche of maybe a normal, quote unquote, normal, as normal as any of us can be white male who shows up on a college campus and gets just hit with this stuff for over the course of a couple of years. I know you're not a psychologist, but I can imagine the effects on someone's self-esteem and psyche if they're really getting this everywhere they turn including, most importantly here, I mean, it's one thing if you have students, I think, just just saying whatever they're saying, but when it's actually supported by the administrations in a lot of these schools, that, that's when it really takes on a sense of authority, and then students might actually think, well, this, this must be true if, if this university, this place I'm going that's going to teach me and prepare me for life in the real world, if they're telling me this, well, it must be true, I must be a bad person, I must be privileged, I must have to rethink my own self-worth because of the color of my skin.
1: There hasn't been a specific study on uh, college-age white, whites who hear this message, but there has been studies on the general population of whites. And actually, one of, kind of a heartening thing is that very few whites actually feel white guilt, but this might just be because most of the population never had to hear these messages. You know, as as I mentioned previously, you know, I've only been out of school for five years and I didn't have to, I never got told to check my white privilege. But- Students who are now going through college and high school who are hearing this messages day in and day out, uh, they might have a different perception of, perception of that. They might actually feel white guilt or as a re- sign of rebellion, they might push back against it, that they kind of go to a different extreme just by hearing this messages throughout. You know, as a, you know, as a young person, you want to rebel if that's what the, you know, the man is telling you, the establishment is telling you. there's a chance you're going to rebel against that and think something that's completely the opposite of that. So there hasn't necessarily been any specific studies on college students, but on a general population, it shows a very small percentage of whites feel bad for being white. I think it's even less than 10%, or it might even be lower than that. I can't give you the exact figure, but it's a very low number, and it's definitely not the majority of whites who feel this. But to the students who are now hearing it, at a much more amped up level, this story might be different.
0: You mentioned this uh, close to the top of the interview that you know we hear a lot of these terms and a lot of mainstream articles even. We hear the term safe space. We hear the term trigger warning. We hear the term microaggression. These are all very generic terms, but you seem to imply there is a lot of sort of maybe self-censorship going on with a lot of the journalism uh, related to this stuff because they seem to really be ignoring this racial aspect, the one that you really hit pretty head-on with your book. Uh, you're, you're not messing around and, and, and avoiding the, the topic here. So, wh- why do you think that is? I think the answer is probably pretty obvious of why a lot of people avoid the racial issue because it does get so charged, but why is this main crux of the issue, the racial aspect, just being left mostly off the table for most of the analysis we see out there?
1: In some part, there is self-censorship, but I think in others, that when they first reacted to this, you know, it's very popular, especially in the conservative press, to have a kind of negative attitude of millennials, you know. They're just busy you know buying up avocado toast and you know voting for obama and being pajama boys and not being able to lift weights or anything and being very you know girly men or something so they were able to i think it played in this aspect that like the whole millennial generation is just a bunch of snowflakes and that's why they couldn't uh, cave in it was kind of a I guess a shallow view of that.
0: It's a fun way, a fun way to knock on, on millennials and maybe Bernie Sanders supporters and that kind of thing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, so and I think a lot of people prefer that angle rather than looking at it differently because nobody wants to be called racist. I don't know. I don't think that was necessarily self-censorship. They just didn't invest, look into the matter so much, but I think there is an element of self-censorship there because if you just focus this in on free speech and everything, you know, there's a lot of liberals who point out that, you know, College kids should hear different points of view, uh, you know, no matter how much they disagree with it. They need to hear that point of view. So they more there's more um, even some center left people in the center left, people who are liberals who are willing to agree that, you know, free speech is important and, you know, college kids should hear um, Ann Coulter. But if you point out that, you know, this is driven by anti-white uh, sentiment, they're going to be like, oh, well, that's crazy conspiracy theory. We don't want to you know take that back to Breitbart or something. You know, they're not going to they're not going to want to hear that. So I think a lot of people, uh, some of the more popular figures who write about college, a lot of the college problems try to avoid the race, racial element So that um, more uh, mainstream publications, but people who are on the center left or liberals will agree with them rather than, you know, if you're pointing out some of the things that like what of these you know, Black Lives Matter people are saying are pretty crazy. And that's basically racism. They're just going to laugh at all. The center left does not want to believe that anti-white racism is a real thing or is any way a problem. Kind of going back to some of the hateful indoctrination, a lot of colleges, this is actually something that I was taught when I was in school, is that uh, non-whites can't be racist. And that is something that's taught in colleges. And that's what a lot of liberals believe. I even was taught that in a college class which most of my students uh, vehemently disagreed with that assertion that only whites could be racist. But this is something taught. And if you bring that element up that a lot of what these college protesters are saying and the reason why they want to shut down speech is due to the fact that, you know, privileged whites shouldn't be saying this. You know, they're just going to laugh you off. They're going to be like, well, that's that's just ridiculous. That's just conspiratorial or anything.
0: Scott, I want to dig into a few other elements of this indoctrination that's going on at our college campuses in just a minute. But first, a quick word from today's sponsors. Hey, guys, this is Roger Paxton. And if you're fed up with the government running every single aspect of your life, but you're not listening to the Lava Flow podcast yet, then what's wrong with you? Check us out at thelavaflow.com or just go back to sucking up to the government. The Lava Flow Podcast, striking the root every single episode. This is Chris Spangle, and I am the host of We Are Libertarians, which you can find in iTunes, Google Play, or at wearelibertarians.com. We are a podcast that brings you all of the irreverence that modern politics deserves by examining current events from a libertarian perspective. So please, check us out at wearelibertarians.com.
1: just one night while you're shoot-
0: also want to touch on another aspect of this outside of the, the strictly racial element is uh, the anti-man element as well. Uh, it is No Campus for White Men in, in the title. And uh, can you tie in how the some of the ideas of, of feminism or extreme feminism, you actually break down sort of the, the different kinds of feminism, the different waves of feminism, and how feminism, I guess what you would now call third wave fem- feminism or fourth wave feminism, I might have my waves off, but uh, and, and then how, the, how those waves, the, the latest wave of feminism and the idea of rape culture tie into all this
1: yeah one of the biggest um controversies on college campus is that uh higher education is has a huge rape epidemic going on that one in five women are going to be sexually assaulted during their time in college and that women are just being victimized by predators every day um which when you actually look at the data it's not very true uh according to the department of justice it's it's i you know, less than 1% of women are sexually assaulted on a college campus, according to the reports. And actually, it's it's, it's far less than uh, 1%. And actually, when compared to the general population for college-age females, you're more non-college-going females who are in that age range are more at risk of sexual assault than those who are in college, which totally undermines the point that colleges are uh, notorious breeding grounds for sexual assault. But the point of the rape culture is not so much to address a real problem. What's going on college campuses right now is that there's a greater number of females than men. And when you're at that age of 18 to 22, uh, people are looking for a boyfriend and girlfriend. They're possibly even looking for uh, their future uh, spouse. But there's fewer men on college campus to have those type of relationships. And they're all going. So if you're a man on college campus and you're in, say, a fraternity, you have much more um, prospects for dating than uh, than a woman does of your similar of your similar status. So uh, there's this great disparity that's happening. and I, and when you look at a lot of the big stories that have happened with uh, rape hoaxes such as UVA, the UVA gang rape hoax, the Columbia mattress girl, a lot of these were started over, a a boy not texting, uh not giving attention to a girl who wanted to date him uh, at UVA. She concocted this whole fantasy uh, in an attempt to get her friend to start dating her, which didn't work. At Columbia, it was a she accused a man who she had consensual sex with uh, of raping her because he stopped replying to her Facebook messages. Oh, was
0: that when the mattress girl,
1: the Yeah, girl? that was mattress girl. Right. So a lot of these are jilted lovers who are using the issue of rape to get back at to get back at men who are not replying to them. But those men have all these opportunities. So what they wanna do with rape culture is they wanna bring down male behavior that they think is too oppressive. Uh, There's also all these issues about mansplaining and manspreading. If you spread your legs too far on on public transportation, you're committing a serious oppression. And if you explain a subject to a woman but in a way they don't like, that's mansplaining. It is a way to exert their power On rape culture, because if they and a lot of what their um, ideas for dealing with rape is about ensuring that men feel fear, like the affirmative consent laws where a man has to keep actively asking yes uh, for consent from a woman uh, during all periods when they're engaging in intercourse. They there was an argument, a famous liberal writer, Ezra Klein, said that I want every man when he engages, you know, starts kissing a woman to feel a chill go down his spine that he could be at risk of of being accused of rape if he's not following all the rules. how
0: romantic.
1: <laughs> yeah, very romantic. it is. This is about making men feel that they have less power than women. and that's what really what they want uh, with by pushing this rape culture. they women want to know that they have power over the dating scene, which due to the imbalance, the gender imbalance, they're losing that power and they're not having the uh, type of relationships that they would like because, there's more men are, excuse me, there's fewer men on a college campus, on your average college campus than there are women. And those mm-hmm. men are have numerous opportunities that a lot of these women don't have. So there is a lot of this jealousy and toxic relationships that are going on. And the rape culture narrative is about kind of bringing men to heal and to make them feel fear that any interaction they have with a woman, if they don't go right, if they don't text her back, if they... Um, if they, you know, are being a jerk or something that they're going to might be at risk of being accused of sexual assault and they could, you know, have their whole life ruined.
0: It's really fascinating that it's, it really seems to be tied to the trend of more and more women going to college. Now, obviously we're not against the idea of women going to college, but I, oh, I have no, to think not. back that maybe back before that was, a, there was a lot of women in college. Let's say there was a time when maybe 10% of college students were women. Well, at that point, I mean, the woman's got all the power because now you got 90% of the men that ha- that only have a pool of 10% of women to go after. So I, I can see why in that point, you know, the men has to be maybe more, more, there might, might need to be more courtship and that sort. Of thing, but when the numbers get so far the other way, when I think you said around fifty-seven percent female and trending the other that way, uh, yeah, that's really interesting because at some point, well, I guess you don't need you know they have to do the courting and and if that doesn't work out, I mean, this is not a societal situation we hadn't necessarily seen until until recent years.
1: No, we haven't, and it's something new, and it's it's the toxic relationships are not going to be solved by implementing these laws like affirmative consent. Or as the Obama administration implemented with the Dear Colleague Letter in 2011, where they demanded that school uh, hearings on this matter, because most of these, whenever a sexual assault allegation happens, it usually goes through the school. It doesn't go through a court of law, and and these school hearings actually require a lower standard of evidence to convict a student. So a lot of times that they-
0: and by lower standard, you so you just mean often no standard, no evidence required.
1: Yeah. Well, and it's, and it's people who are not trained in the subject determining somebody's life while in a court of law, it's all professionals, you know, it's, you know, we have a judge and a jury, it's, you know, sometime a fellow classmate who doesn't understand the procedure who's, you know, uh, determining your life. And by standards, because there's numerous examples of students student have, you know, they have text messages showing that it was a consensual encounter getting kicked out of school uh, or where they take it to a court of law. You know, it could be something that, you know, both of the students were drunk and they couldn't necessarily remember uh, whether consent was given, which in a court of law, if like, you know, nobody can remember that's not considered sexual assault. And the court throws it out. You know, you just can't feel like, well, the next morning I felt bad about it. So I guess it was great. You know, a court of law is going to be like, that's not a real standard of evidence. We're going to throw that out. So there's been numerous times where a student got expelled from school. They take it to you know a real court and they get reinstated (laughs) at the school and the school's verdict is thrown out. So, and all these are going to keep uh, happening when feminists are encouraging male hatred and that all men are out to, you know, rape you and mans play into you and take up all your space on public transportation. You know, this is creating a toxic environment where women view males as predators and who are not worthy of trust
0: it's certainly not a good starting point for healthy relationships when you have a large number of females expecting to be raped and always on guard for it because they're hitting with being hit with that propaganda and then on the other side you've got males who are afraid of being accused of rape if they make the wrong move so right from the get-go just not the best way to be starting off uh, potentially budding relationships uh, whatsoever uh, now Scott one thing I want to ask you about uh, before we get going here do you, have you re- received any backlash uh, obviously I, I don't think i'm giving too much away here you are a white male yourself uh, have you received any sort of threats or any kind of uh, i don't know maybe it's as simple as just mean tweets or something like that but have you received any kind of backlash for the work you're doing on this book
1: no not really i mean the only uh, threats i received is uh, i sent a, a troll tweet out in november when uh, trump won the election and everyone was like you know melting down they're like that's a you know as a gay man, I no longer feel safe in America because I don't know Trump was very pro LGBT rights and somehow he's going to kill all the gays or something. I, I don't understand a lot of this. I was just saying, as as a white man, I now got fi- now finally feel safe in America. Well, a lot of people didn't, didn't get very happy about that, and they there and their arguments against that were to uh, threaten me, so I no longer felt safe in America. But none of them were really uh, were real threats, but and it was mostly entertaining to me. No, mostly what I've gotten is. Uh, you know, a few tweets like, you know, you're a bigot or you're a racist. But I mean, nothing. I don't really care about that. I mean, it's all humorous to me. I mean, it's just it's on the Internet. Who cares about it? So I haven't really received any backlash. Well, I actually thought there'd be more backlash to it from, <laughs> you know, kind of the liberal press. But I think they're just so fixated on Trump and other matters that they don't have time for a little me.
0: Well, they've got Russia internally taking over the country yeah. to worry about, so it's un- it's understandable if they can't focus on on Scott Greer's book. Uh, have you thought about taking this, uh, taking maybe any speeches or anything about your book to campuses physically, though? Because that that's a point where you might actually get a little backlash.
1: Yeah, I've had a few. Ex- I've had been in talks with some students to get me on college campus, but nothing's gone through. I mean, it's kind of rough dealing with students. Uh, the only time, the only one I've really focused on is going to speak in my alma mater which has been very difficult. There are students who want to bring me there and I've been in touch with them, but uh, the school has very stringent matters about, you know, it's only a student group can have somebody and the college Republicans there are, uh, you know, they're not
0: going near that huh? uh,
1: too wimpy <laughs> to have me on. They don't want to deal with any controversy. They just want to pretend Jeb Bush is president or something. <laughs> but so it, I've, I've been trying to get that worked out, but it, it's been a little difficult. I think students, I mean, school's been out, but I think after the Milo events and and Coulter and other that a lot of students were very hesitant about having any speakers that would be controversial. And they're also worried that the schools would do matters to shut it down. Like, uh, what they, how they were able to shut down Ann Coulter is that, well, security reasons, you know, they use security concerns every time to shut down. So it's a lot more difficult to bring on a speaker, you know, like Milo or Coulter or anybody uh, who might be saying something controversial because then a school will be like, well, we're going to charge you eight grand for security fees. And if you don't pay by the state, then you can't do this. Well, you know, you're dealing with a student group that, you know, doesn't have the type of resources. So they shut people down.
0: I mean, that's scary. That's basically an across the board heckler's veto that universities can just use and basically use for anybody remotely controversial that they can deem controversial. They can just make that claim. Well, the security is too high, costs are too high unless you give us this money. And, you know, a lot of these student groups sponsoring these things won't have that kind of money to give up. So it's, it's a tough situation for for anybody that's trying to speak out on these issues to to be in.
1: Yep, it is, and it's only getting worse. So maybe we'll see in the fall when school starts back up for a lot of colleges if, you know, this issue is still around. Uh, hopefully I get to speak on my alma mater soon. So we'll see. Uh, yeah, so I have been trying, uh, been a little difficult as of late. So we'll see.
0: Well, we'll, we'll certainly keep an eye on it and we we'll certainly hope you can get this stuff out there more. Uh, before I let you go, Scott, why don't you let our listeners know where they can find the book? Of course, we'll link to that in today's show notes uh, through our Amazon link over at lionsofliberty.com, uh, but all, as well as your finding your work at the Daily Caller and how they can get in touch with you on social media. And feel free to plug anything else you got going on.
1: All right. Well, as you said, it could you can find the book at both ebook and print. On Amazon.com right now, it's fully in stock. So it's of, uh, and if, but if you prefer the old fashioned way of getting a book, it's also available at your local Barnes and Noble. And if you would like to follow my work, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Scott M. Greer, and that's G R E E R. And also, uh, you can find my work at dailycaller.com.
0: And if you enjoy a little bit of snark in your tweets, I do recommend following Scott on Twitter. So Scott, it's been a blast. I wish you all the best with your book and everything else going forward. All
1: right, thanks for having me.
0: All right, folks. I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Scott Greer of The Daily Caller. I really do recommend checking out his book, No Campus for White Men. Again, I'll link to that over at today's show notes at com slash 297. If you use our link to buy that book, We get a little kickback, really easy way to support the show at no extra cost to yourself. Of course, another way you can support the show is by joining the Lions of Liberty Pride, by becoming a patron of this program, helping to fund our operation, and helping us to grow, because that's really what we're looking to do here in the coming years, is to expand our reach, expand our audience, and you can be a part of that by joining the Pride. For as little as $5 a month, you can get access to all sorts of exclusive audio content, including. A special early sneak peek of my 300th episode. And again, you can find all the information you need about signing up for that over at lionsofliberty.com slash support. And if you're a member of the Lions of Liberty Pride, you would already have the information, which I've put out there, in the very special, very secret Facebook group for Pride members only, about my plans for this episode, but I can now announce it to the general public that for episode 300, I am hosting a conversation between Jason Stapleton, who's been very critical of the Libertarian Party and a lot of what's come out of it in in the last election cycle, and Larry Sharp, a guy who actually won our fan poll over in the Lions of Liberty Forum for who people most wanted to hear on the show. Uh, Of course, you can join the Lions of Liberty Forum by just typing... Lions of Liberty Forum, simply enough, in your little search bar on Facebook, it should pop right up. We'll get you right in there to join this conversation and participate, because we really do use it as a way to gauge what you guys want to see from the show, and it's really become a great little community where a lot of libertarians or people just getting interested in the ideas of liberty are able to meet up, have respectful conversations uh, without really getting at each other's throats. So I really do encourage you, if you're on Facebook, to come and join the Lions of Liberty Forum. Forum. One member of the Lions of Liberty Forum that I want to tell you about real quickly, a guy I've mentioned before, he's also a member of the Lions of Liberty Pride, and that is a gentleman by the name of Clint Rankin. Why am I telling you about this random person, Clint Rankin? Well, Clint is not just a random person. He is spearheading a project Called Walk the Walk, which is designed to bring people of the, a liberty persuasion together to, of course, voluntarily, how else would libertarians be doing things, uh, fund charitable projects. In conjunction with several other podcasts, including some people from the Jason Stapleton program, as well as our friends and sponsors of the show over at the Johnny Rocket Launchpad, We Are Libertarians, and the Lava Flow podcast, we are all working in coordination with Greg Glyer and Donor C to fund a specific project one at a time. And currently, we're funding this project for Esther, and Esther was looking to uh, fund about $1,500 for her to pay for one year of her HIV medication. She's a young woman in Africa, living with AIDS. And uh, also, the rest of that money is going to help train her to work on this chicken farm, which is great because it's actually going to help support her community and support several orphans in the process. So it really is somewhat of a libertarian project, since you really are helping someone empower themselves to help themselves as well as help other people. So I think it's a really great pick that we've made uh, for this project. We are two-thirds of the way to funding it as of right now. So if you're listening to this, even if you're not a member of the lions and Liberty pride and you're looking in your wallet and you got five bucks to spend wait till next month I, I want you guys to sign up but wait till next month put that five bucks towards Esther go take out your phone if you don't already have it, get the DonorSee app. Uh, You can go to either my page, you can go to Gret Glyer's page, you can go to Clint Rankin's page, and you should be able to easily find the Esther Project. Uh, We're also, of course, we'll link to that over in the forum, Lions of Liberty forum on Facebook, as well as the show notes for today's show at lionsofliberty.com slash 297. So plenty of ways to find this project. And if you can't, by all means, reach out to me, drop me an email, m a r c at lionsofliberty.com. We'll make sure you find the right one. We only need $500 left. Guys, if... Even a quarter of the people listening to the show right now just gave a dollar each. We'd fund this thing in a second. I mean, no problem. So it really is the simplest thing you could do. Of course, most people give 5 10 bucks, 10 something like that. So we can really get this thing done. I'd love to push to get this project fully funded this week. That's my goal. I'm setting the bar. Let's do this thing, guys. It's a really great project. Let's show people that libertarians don't just talk the talk. We walk the walk. We walk the walk to freedom. So to learn more about Walk the Walk want you to look them up on Facebook. There's a group you can join. There's also a Facebook page. There's also a website for those not on Facebook, walkthewalktofreedom.com. So please connect with us, connect with Clint, connect with myself, connect with all these podcasts, get together with us. Let's make this a massive, massive libertarian charity movement. I, mean, I think this is really a great way that we can not only help people, but also show people that libertarian solutions, voluntary solutions can be effective, m- much more effective than uh, coercive, gigantic bureaucracies, uh, which I think almost everyone listening to this program now probably agrees with. Let's put it into action. Let's show the world what we got. And of course, while you're browsing around and taking care of chores on the internet, why don't you drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a five-star review. If you haven't already, that's a lot to help boost this show at no cost to yourself. Until next time, folks, be sure to tune in this coming Wednesday to Brian McWilliams with Electric Liberty Land, his weekly look at comedy, culture, and liberty. And of course, this Friday, John Odermatt will return once again with another look at the broken criminal justice system on Felony Friday. Until next time, folks, live long and live free.